Well, good evening, everybody. Steve is out tonight, unfortunately. He has a accountability group. It's a group of friends he's had since seminary. And they meet once a year in different locations. And this year it was Midland. So he's meeting with them. And uh, it's, it's good, good for his soul. With all that he's had going on, we, uh, we don't begrudge him that. We want his soul to be good and healthy. So remember him if you would. But that means I need your help tonight. Steve keeps me from getting uh, in trouble. So I'm going to get in trouble tonight. But my, my theory is if I get in trouble, then you don't have to. And part of my job is to get you to think, to think with Scripture. Ultimately, God wants us to be informed by Scripture, to digest Scripture, to have Scripture flowing through us. So all parts of it need to be part of our life. And then we can make Christ-like choices. It's not memorizing the answers to a test. It's knowing how to take the test. That's life. So tonight we're going to get into the deep weeds of Jesus's life. Think about what is the most complicated part of your life. What is it? Family. Family. (laughs) It's not work as much as we spend our time there. You know, even Jesus, his work saving the world, not as hard as his family, as you will discover. And this... It raises a lot of questions, but ultimately I think it's, it's true and it's designed to be encouraging. If we can sort of get through it, get through the, the surprise part. With so much of Jesus' story, we want to instantly start worshiping it. Oh, this is the story of Jesus and it's special and it's holy and, and, and we are to worship Jesus. We are to worship God. But I think we have to do our homework first uh, before we start worshiping to make sure we know what we're worshiping and is it the right thing. So as always, we need help. We need our teacher to come. And it's not me. It's the guy upstairs. So let's talk to him for a minute and then we'll jump into it. Father our God, we do lay ourselves before you today. It has been a good day, oh Father. We are blessed among people. We are blessed to have the time tonight to sit in comfort and ease and open our eyes and hearts to your word. Help us be changed by it. For we know that the seeds of your word don't just land idly. They are to be planted and to grow, to sprout fruit within our heart. May that be true of us tonight. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, we have walked with Jesus in the northern region in Galilee, where he's grown up. And hopefully now, after kind of a month under our belt, we're getting a sense of Galilee. Am I wrong? I mean, do you have a little more sense of what Galilee was like? It's, it's green. It's not the desert. He didn't grow up in the desert. It's not part of the Jewish state proper. It's like he grew up in New York today and not Israel. So he grows up outside of the normal Jewish kingdom. 
his area is, is very mixed. It's very segregated. You have Jewish towns and you have Gentile towns. It's brutally occupied. Rebellion tends to start where he's from. There's a lot of civil unrest. So daily he probably would have seen acts of brutality on the part of Romans. People, if not daily, weekly, crucified all over the area. It's a, it's a rough, rough time. We've talked a little bit about his experience in Nazareth. Uh, when Jesus started his traveling as a rabbi to preach in synagogues, it goes very well in Capernaum. And this is the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But over in the agricultural region uh, further west in Nazareth, how does it go when he preaches in that synagogue? Yeah, not great. They liked what he said, but they didn't like what he said afterwards, that he wasn't there to do miracles, to be a sideshow. And so they tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. I've preached some bad sermons, but never had my life threatened. Um, It's a goal I have. Um, So tonight, that's sort of the general picture. Tonight, we're going to get into, as Steve and I say, the nitty-gritty, into his relationship with his mother and his family. And some of you probably know parts of the story, most of the story, uh, but we'll try to raise some new questions and really, really process it. So speak loud, because I'm deaf, but what do we know about Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus? She's young, yeah, probably 13, 14 when she had Jesus, uh, typical age. She what? Yeah, she, like Joseph, are of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. And so when they have to go report to the census, they go to uh, Bethlehem, where they're related to everybody. That's why everybody is there. So their family, some family lives there, and then some family would be visiting. And how did that go for her in Bethlehem? All alone, yeah. Um, I think that really is the image scripture presents, that this teenage girl gives birth to the Messiah, to God, in a barn with stinky animals and no help. No mother, no sister, no midwife, nobody. You know, that poor girl crying in the darkness. So what I really want to help us tonight is kind of recover the extraordinary person that she was. What happened to her, though, what has what Mary turned into? What Over the centuries, millennia, what have we turned her into? Yeah, a... Uh, I don't know how to say this, an idol. I mean, we've turned her into that, right? Um, she becomes uh, someone we pray to. Um, you know, Mary, the mother of God. Uh, in the Greek East, they called her uh, the Theokotos, the mother of God. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus. So we're, we're going to try to untangle all of that tonight and see see where we go. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 1, begin with. Uh, we tend to hear this every Christmas. We bring it out and we read it, and it's extraordinary. It is God selecting 
Mary, of all the people that had ever existed, what is it about this, this girl? Now, just for my sanity, um, if we ran around and called her Mary, she wouldn't recognize that name. And that's not her name. That's a translation that we've come up with for her name. Her name was Miriam, which is the Hebrew name. So the sister of Moses uh, obviously becomes a very, very important name for the Jews. And uh, in Aramaic, it's the same as in Hebrew. So that's what she would have been called. If you go back in a time machine and run around and ask for Mary, uh, they're probably going to send you to a Greek town. (laughs) Um, You'd want Miriam. But we pick up in chapter 1, verse 26 of Luke, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin. And that would be really important for us, obviously, named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said... Greetings. Now, favored one. Yeah, that's a little loose. I would prefer blessed one. Uh, the Lord is with you. And that's, that's a powerful statement there. The Lord is with you. You know what that is in Hebrew? You do, actually. Every Christmas, what do we sing about Jesus? What's the prophetic name of Jesus? Emmanuel. And that's what the Lord is with you means. So everybody asks, well, why didn't we name Jesus Emmanuel? Well, it's the prophetic name. His middle name was, no, I'm kidding. Um, We've talked about that. His middle name was H, right? Jesus, H, Christ. No, I don't know. Um, See, missing Steve already, already. Hope he's not watching. We miss you. So. So she is blessed. Um, God is with her. Uh, We continue on. Confused and disturbed. Again, uh, 13, 14, who wouldn't be? Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. And angels almost always have to say this to us. They do. Uh, The angel told her, you have found favor with God. Again, not a lot of detail. Here it is. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. And he'll say, I explained that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but now she has conceived a son, and she is in her sixth month. For the word of God never fails. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left. So we've had a lot of discussions in Scripture about God talking to people or angels talking to people, but this, this one is in a category uh, way, way ab- above. God has picked a partner, if you will, to bring Jesus into the world. How does that work? Now, it's filling in these details, 
that we Christians sometimes get in trouble. I'm a firm believer that God is not in the fairy tales. A lot of times we Christians don't understand the scriptures well, and so we make up stuff. And we think that's the truth about God. This is not fairy tale. He has given us his word, and we need to understand it. Once we get into the details, it takes some work, but I think that's where you really discover the inspiration, the beauty, the power. So we're all grown-ups. We have to think for a minute. So she is a virgin. She's engaged to be married. Um, they're, they've said it twice, right? She is, she is a virgin. When they use it here in Greek, it's absolutely deadlocked in terms of definition, meaning that she has never been with a man before. So this is a miracle, unless referring to a prophecy in Isaiah, where a virgin, a woman that's never been with a man, will give birth to a child. So how does that work? You, it's a miracle. So we don't know how it works, right? It's God's problems, it's not ours. Well, and, and I like that. Um, as long as we don't let other people fill in details for us that are not in Scripture. So, we can call her appropriately the Virgin Mary, right? She stays a virgin the rest of her life, right? No, no, she doesn't. Not at all. In fact, we'll look at the scriptures in just a few minutes where she'll have lots of other kids. But this is part of the struggle that we have in dealing with some of these stories. A lot of times in our studies, we look at the horrible mistakes the Jews have made over the last millennia. You know, horrible decisions they make and God gets mad at them and he has to restore them. And it sort of gives us a sense that, well, the Jews were just always a hot mess. But hopefully we're beginning to see, just like us, there were lots of different types. I mean, there's a Galilean Jews, and they're different than Jews in Jerusalem. And they're different than Jews in Alexandria. And they're different from Jews in uh, Babylon. They're, it, it's a big group. Some people have got it going on and some people don't. Uh, many Jews do accept Jesus. That's why the movement starts. Every book of the Bible has been written by a Jew except for Luke. Uh, disciples, they're all Jewish. I mean, a large percentage is getting it. And think about what we do in Christianity. Are there crazy Christians? Oh, are you kidding? I mean, I, honestly, there may be more crazy Christians out there than there are normal. But what we tend to do is we take our own particular branch, right? And we say, well, they're crazy and they're crazy and they're crazy, but we're not. Um, the Jews are doing the same thing, right? There's one group that says, well, we're not crazy and you're crazy. Uh, so that's a hard way to introduce. We've got a lot of stuff in our history as Christians that are just as bad as what the Jews did. A lot. And I hate to say it, starting out of the gate, we went nuts with Mary. Think about it. Who generally did Greeks and Romans tend to worship? Gods and goddesses. 
So it was in many ways much easier to have a goddess than it was to have a Jewish rabbi. In Greek thought, and it influences the Romans, we've talked a lot about this, the spirit is good and the body is bad. All things that are spiritual are pure and everything physical, fleshly is bad. Now there's a part of Christianity that says this is true, but it's not all the way extreme true. Not all physical things are bad. How do you become good biblically? We've talked about tov a lot. What do you do to become good? You have children. Having children is good. God intended it to be good. Sex is not bad. Does Christianity act that way early on? No. We, we think sex is horrible. Very quickly, the church will start with this idea of, nu- of nuns and monks. Why are we doing that? Why do we think priests have to be celibate? Now, I'm not trying to Catholic bash because they're, they're part of the church. I mean, they're part of us. But I'm also not going to sugarcoat mistakes that we made. It was very easy for them to take a lot of their culture and shove it down Christ's message. My fear and my, my true conviction is if you took Jesus into a Catholic church, especially during the medieval period, and you took a Roman pagan in a Catholic church, the Roman would feel more, far more comfortable than Jesus would. Jesus would not understand the worship of his mother at all. And this whole idea that Mary has to stay a perpetual virgin. Because again, in the Greek Roman thinking, if she had sex, she can't be pure, right? That corrupts her. And as much as I believe in the immaculate conception of Jesus, the early, and I'm, I'm using this term loosely, early church, so about 400 years, so almost half a millennia, but the early church will turn it into say that Mary was born without sin. Now, does scripture say that? No. And this is what I mean, that we're, we're trying to worship her before we really know her. She was, I think, an extraordinary person whose faith we should look at. But she wasn't a goddess. She wasn't a demigod. She wasn't, you know, the super saint. Um, she could have walked away. She had that real power. I, as much as we hate to hear it, but abortion was a possible uh, outcome. Um, the Romans and Greeks do it all the time. Um, Jews not so much, but it still was possible. She chooses not to do that, and that's what's beautiful. Not what we turn her into. It was very easy for the Greeks and Romans to begin to create this image of a perpetual virgin. The Romans have vestal virgins, that serve the gods. And again, they must always stay pure. So again, Mary is starting to look far more like a pagan goddess than she is who scripture described her as. Now she's blessed. This miracle is performed on her. And what is the early years like with Jesus? I mean, I think one part wonderful, right? Right? 
um, when Jesus is taken to the temple uh, so he can be circumcised, there's confirmation from different sources. Um, there, there's Simon and Anna. People have been at the temple for a long time, and they recognize that Jesus is the one, the Messiah. So all of this stuff that happened to her, the visit of the wise men, the star, the angel, there's confirmation in her heart. It's beautiful. But then she has to run for her life, Right? Herod starts killing the babies. So she's a refugee with Joseph and has to run to Egypt. Uh, we don't know what those years were like, but they can't have been fun. Uh, Joseph certainly had a skill, stonemason, that he could employ in Egypt, but it, it was rough uh, traveling countries in, in the Roman occupation in the first century to begin with. And then we know she comes back to Nazareth, again with Joseph, And that's where I want to pick up the story uh, with our next scripture, Matthew. And you guys know this. We've talked about it in here. It's it's a couple places in the Gospels. Um, When Jesus had finished telling these stories, he left that part of the country. He'd been south. He's going north. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown, where he taught there in the synagogue. Everyone was amazed. Where does he get his wisdom and power to do the miracles? They scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So again, these names, we have to be careful with translation. Uh, James, which, um, is he here tonight? I have a good friend named James. <laughs> he, uh, it's where we got this name. It's a translation, but it's actually in Hebrew, Jacob. So again, Mary, the mother of James, is Miriam, the mother of Jacob. <laughs> Uh, so Jacob, uh, Joseph, Simon, and Jude or Judas. Uh, so she has children with Joseph. That's good. That's what God intended. But this is where it gets convoluted. So the Catholic teaching is that Mary had to stay a perpetual virgin. So what do you do with the scripture? Well, yeah, they had a hard time with it. They create this most elaborate story that sounds like a teenager trying to explain something to you. But actually, Joseph had another wife before Mary. And these are the stepkids. And so they're really not, you know, it just, it gets um, so convoluted. And this is why always... With whatever I say, whatever the church teaches, whatever you hear on the radio, on television, reading a book, open your scripture and read it. This is what keeps us from letting our culture so blind us. Again, that in cultural imperative, she's got to be a perpetual virgin because that's what's spiritual. Listen to the Bible. It's not bad to have Children, it's not bad to have sex. Yes, you need to have sex within the confines of marriage. The Bible's very clear about that. But you don't become more holy if you don't have sex. How much of Christian history have we taught that? Now, again, it's not our branch of Christianity, but in a sense, we still wear that, that mistake. To me, this is what they turned Mary into was like the golden calf for the Jews. They made a God that was more comfortable, more understanding. And do you know how to pray to Mary? 
Yeah. So we've Hail Mary, and just think of that phrase for a minute. Hail Mary? Yeah. <laughs> Go along, Mary. Um, poor girl. Um, Hail Mary and all that. Yeah. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. So part of the scripture. Blessed are you amongst women. That's true. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Yes. Holy Mary, mother of God. I don't agree with that. Um, pray for us sinners now in the hour of our death. Um, reminds me of a joke. Um, growing up in El Paso, there was a joke that was told about uh, a very devout Catholic lady that was praying one day and Jesus was just touched absolutely touched by the fervency of her prayer. And so he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do something for her. And he just reaches down from heaven, he calls out and says, I'm here, what do you want? She doesn't do anything. She just keeps praying. And Jesus says, well, normally they, they react when I talk to them. So he tries again, nothing. And Jesus was a little upset at this point. So he finally said, it's me, what do you want? She finally looked up and said, son, if you'd be quiet, I'm trying to talk to your mother. (laughs) And you see what I mean? I mean, there's a little bit of, mm, what's going on there? Um, She's an extraordinary person, but she's not the intercessor between us and God. Um, So, any questions? I mean, I'm, again, not trying to pick on anybody. Um, I'm just, we're trying to get scripture out there and be, be what it is. All right. So Mary has had probably more confirmation than anybody about who Jesus is. I mean, as a mother can only know a child, she knows something special about Jesus. And it's been confirmed by angels, wise men, shepherds, uh, even Herod, I mean, everybody. So does she always believe her son? She doubts him. Let's look at uh, the Mark passage. Um, This is really shocking and disturbing to me, but uh, it's the Mark 3, I believe. So Jesus is in the height of his ministry at Capernaum. And if you know, we've talked about there's crowds everywhere. I mean, it's packed from wall to wall. People are squeezed. They're tearing down roofs. Um, and it's, it's getting out of hand. Um, rabbis have come to challenge Jesus. I mean, it's, it's like a mob. So one time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began gathering again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard, and this is Jesus' family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. And then jumping down in verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. <laughs> to me, this sounds like something that happened to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? Um, obviously baptized Jesus's, baptized Jesus, sees the confirmation, this is my son whom I am well pleased, uh, tells Jesus I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. 
but then gets arrested, is in prison. We know eventually we'll have his head cut off for a birthday party. Um, but before he dies, he sends a question from one of his disciples to Jesus asking, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? How could someone that had such confirmation doubt? And so we'll talk about Jesus's brothers in just a minute. Uh, we know they do think he's really crazy. But what do you think is going on with Mary? This is where I think it gets very real. Yeah? And justifiably so, uh, that he's, he's going to attract the wrong attention, and uh, the Romans, as they do, will kill him. Uh, the Romans kill a lot of messiahs, fake messiahs, um, as soon as they can get their hands on them because they tend to be the rallying point for people uh, to rebel, they will kill them. Uh, there's a long list, I think seven um, is the count, um, three years before Jesus and three years after him, uh, seven other people claiming to be the messiah. So in a sense, he's not the only game in town but he's very different from the other ones. Do you think she always knew he was going to die? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one, isn't it? Gabriel didn't say anything about that. There, there is some stuff later on that your heart will be pierced. And, and the, so that uh, could have tipped her off. And again, I don't think Jesus hid what was going to happen to him. It's interesting what he told her and what he didn't tell her. Now we looked at last week, what did he do for her at Cana? Yeah. And for no other reason than she asked. You know, it's not some great deep, you know, parable. In fact, he really wasn't ready for it. It's, you know, he had sort of his own timetable and it's okay. And, you know, like a Jewish mom, she didn't even wait for the answer. She just said, okay. And um, so there has to be some closeness. But why would she think he's crazy? Or is she just going along with the other kids? Trying to protect him? Yeah. Didn't want him to die, which what mother does. Um, yeah. Sort of had her own images, understanding, ideas. I mean, she couldn't have grown up in Galilee with their focus on rabbinic Judaism and not be very exposed to ideas of scripture and Messiah. I mean, this is what people are constantly talking about. So she, she would have known quite a bit. Again, Jewish children are raised to memorize scripture, both boys and girls. Uh, so she, yeah. It, back when I was in seminary, they got on this kick about uh, she was illiterate. <laughs> Not in an ancient first century way. She's not illiterate. Um, she probably had more scripture memorized than all Methodist pastors combined. And yet 
she, you know, she, she was a housewife. Um, but there's really this human side to her. And that's, I think, what this passage is kind of pointing to. This stuff was still confusing, even to those closest to Jesus. Now, think long and hard about this. Do you think Jesus ever did a private miracle for her or the family? At Cana? Or, or where? How did she know? Yeah. This, this is exactly what we want to be doing. To, she knew he could solve it at Cana. Um, but is Jesus usually excited to do miracles? No. He's, he's pretty restrictive um, about it. Although it appears to be a source of conflict with his brothers. Let me take you to that passage in John. So John's chronology is kind of different from everybody else's, but this is sort of in the middle of Jesus's three and a half years of teaching. Uh, Jesus has now attracted crowds both in Galilee and also in Jerusalem. And scripture doesn't really describe it, but they say there were miracles at the Passover. We don't know what those were, but whatever it did, it, it, it got a lot of attention. So after this, he's leaving Jerusalem. He travels to Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders are plotting his death. But it soon was time for the festival of shelters. So this is Sukkot. This is where you go and you live in your backyard for a week to appreciate all the stuff that you have. And Jesus' brothers, so this would include uh, Jacob, James, and uh, Jude, or Judas. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. So this has to be some sort of family thing. You know, either they've heard about his miracles, they saw it at Cana, or there was something that happened with him and the family. I, I, we don't know, but it, it's a source of contention. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do, if you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Holy cow. This is Jesus' brother. Um, it does sound like brothers, doesn't it? Why is it so hard with family? Um, those that you love more than anybody else. Those that you go to work for. Those that you do everything for. It's so hard to talk to them. Um, this is true in my family. So I think it's true in any family. Uh, and it's true of Jesus' family. How is it? I mean, his brothers basically are telling him what? Yeah. Go put on a show. Get killed. See, see what we care. Yeah. If you're going to be famous, if you're going to have a crowd, you can't hide out here in Galilee. Go down there. Do, do your thing. But they don't seem to believe it at all. I mean, Jesus has raised people from the dead. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. That's half the population of the Galilee region. That's enormous. Question. Question. 
That, that's a great question. She's bringing up the fact that Joseph obviously has dropped out of the picture. Um, as, and it's always hard to say typically. I mean, typically women start having children at 13, 14, and typically men get married in their early 20s after they've established themselves. Um, so there, there's a pretty big age difference. Again, think about your great-great-grandparents. You know, what age was the husband and what age was the wife? I mean, it tended to be a lot different than it is now. But he obviously drops out of the, the picture. Um, if you could raise Lazarus, why couldn't you raise dad? Also, the firstborn in uh, Jewish culture has a very, very important role. It's all over the Old Testament. The firstborn gets the double portion of inheritance. And if you've ever had to distribute farmland, you know how dicey this can be, right? Because if you divide the farm up so much that the people can't survive on it, you've not helped your kids. So generally, the oldest got everything, and that included extra to take care of mom and dad. So as a rabbi, is Jesus taking care of mom and dad? No, he's traveling with his disciples, and at this point in his life, he's living off of uh, people that support him. Um, it's sort of like old-fashioned traveling ministers. I mean, you would feed them, you would put them up in your house, you would take care of them. He's an itinerant traveling rabbi. Um, he has some wealthy supporters like uh, Mary and Martha, people like that, but uh, he's not in Nazareth taking care of his mother. So that job would fall to Jacob, James. And you're right, there's probably a lot of bitterness. Uh, here I don't have the double inheritance that you had, and yet it's falling to us to take care of them. So how do you think Jesus responded to this? Some of you know. He turned the other cheek and said to his brother, I love you anyway. Nope. Even Jesus got hacked off at his family. Um, his response, now's not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you because it, uh, the world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. So in this loving kind of way, rabbinic way, he says, little brother, brothers, uh, you don't matter. <laughs> you can go, nobody will care. I'm trying to do something about this world, so leave me alone. And if you don't hear sibling rivalry in that, you're not listening. Uh, again, how very real is all of this? And I think it really should shake us, wake us up to, to realize you're not going to get Jesus' message. You're not going to get the movement of God by just sitting there. Uh, you, you have to look at it. You have to open your eyes. You have to continue, as he says, to delve into his word. You have to seek after the spirit. You've got to try to understand. Proximity, your brother being the Messiah, isn't instantly going to do everything for you. Uh, even those closest to him didn't acknowledge him. That's crazy. So let me stop. Are we doing okay? Questions? Yes. Because his dad was a stonemason and he didn't have any money. So 
they don't have land. They don't have anything. I don't know. Do families fight over putting mom in the nursing home if nobody has any money? <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, can you imagine Jesus just having to say, look, I'm trying to save the world here. Can you give me a break? Um, who does Jesus at the cross entrust his mother to? John. Now, what kind of insult is that? (laughs) Exactly. He doesn't mention any of the brothers. He doesn't mention any of the sisters. That was their responsibility. So maybe that gives us some, and again, I'm speculating here, some insight into as Jesus' ministry came to a culmination, Mary was certainly there. She certainly goes. And we'll see her show up again in the early church, uh, very involved in Acts. So she seems to have left the brothers and was trying to be with Jesus right up until the end. And so Jesus, not entirely trusting, I think, James, his brother, uh, asked John, who, according to John, is the disciple that Jesus loved anyway, um, to take care of his mom. Exactly. So Jesus dies. He's resurrected. He comes back to earth for 40 days. He visits many people, um, hundreds during that time. And it's all very strategic from Peter uh, sort of reestablishing him. He goes to Galilee. He'll go to Thomas. And one of the encounters that we have, but not detailed, is him visiting his brother James. Man, why can't we have that conversation? I think, honestly, because Jesus lost it with his brother and he didn't want it recorded. He probably showed up and said, guess what? I was right. Who was wrong? Go ahead and admit it. Come on, James. Who was God and who was not? Come on, say it. Say the M word. I was the Messiah. No, I don't don't know. (laughs) But it's a little hard to argue that your brother is better than you when he's come back from the dead, right? You know, like Mary always said, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? Oh, my gosh. How many times do I have to hear that? Um, So whatever happens at this meeting, and Paul is the one that tells us about it in Corinthians, this completely and utterly changes James. 180 degrees. He he moves from being his brother's biggest critic, uh, maybe the greatest thorn in his brother's side, to the greatest supporter of his brother. He will become uh, my... Well, I say this based on Acts. He will become more of a Christian than Peter and Paul. And he becomes the leader of the church. In Acts, as the church is unfolding, making its decisions, the person on top is James. Just proves it doesn't matter how hard you work. It's just who you know. So um, there you go. He got promoted, but all poor Peter did, and James got the bump. Um, One of the most important decisions that James will have to make is whether to include us. Remember, Paul keeps running around and saying, hey, we've got to reach out to these Gentiles. We've got to do it. And a lot of the the other Jewish believers are saying, 
are you sure? I mean, we never really saw Jesus do this. Um, we saw Jesus get circumcised. We saw Jesus uh, stay kosher. We saw Jesus follow the laws. I mean, he was, uh, went to, we just read um, the temples or the festival of shelters, Sukkot. I mean, Jesus did all these things. Why now are you thinking that these other believers don't have to do it? Um, it's crazy talk. But James and God bless him, really had enough of his brother's focus that he was able to say, you know what, for us Jews that follow Jesus, there's one path. But for the Gentiles that are trying to follow Jesus, uh, there's another path. And do you know what he said that we should do? Don't eat blood. Uh, Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. And no prostitutes. <laughs> yeah. Th- thanks for bringing that up, Tom. Um, <laughs> so uh, have we lived up to that? Uh, more or less, uh, I come from a long line of Germans. We eat blood all the time. It's horrible. Um, maybe, maybe the food for idols. I don't know. But if he hadn't made that decision, then we wouldn't. Um, we wouldn't be here today. So he, he plays this incredible role. Again, what does that say to us when we have family members that we just don't ever think we'll get it? That as much as we have tried to win them over, we just can't. In this life, Jesus couldn't do it. So as I said, Mary stays with the disciples Uh, But she seems to be reunited with Jude and James. Now, James will go on to become uh, a Zedek. Now, this is like his dad. The uh, Roman translations call him James the Just, uh, which is the translation of the Hebrew uh, Hazedek, the righteous. Now, this is what they call Joseph before the scandal with Mary. And it's a very rare, rare title. It's a Jew saying of another Jew that this person keeps the law. They really do. They are doing what God asked them to do. So that even though James was from Galilee, even though he had an accent, even though he was the brother of Jesus, who was very much a controversial figure, the Jews in Jerusalem, after the death of Jesus, respect James like he's Billy Graham. It's crazy. The most famous Christian after Jesus' death is his brother who didn't believe in him. When we look at historical sources, uh, James shows up. I mean, these are outside the scripture. James shows up like nobody's business. Um, we have a very hard time finding uh, Peter. We do a little, and we can't hardly find Paul at all. Uh, it was James. Now, Jerusalem was in a very bad way uh, following the death of Jesus. Uh, about three decades, the city, uh, really the whole country, but particularly Jerusalem, is like a, a boiling pot. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And different groups are coming in the city, and they're, they're more and more violent. There's terrorist groups. There's rebel groups. Eventually, the zealots, and these are the people who Simon the zealot, a disciple of Jesus, had belonged to. Eventually, they will 
uh, wrestle control of the government in Jerusalem away from other Jews by force of arms and take control. They were trying, these zealots, uh, they're sort of half terrorists, half freedom fighters. They're, they're the ones that are going to launch the revolt against Rome. They're trying to sway the population of Jerusalem away from peace towards war. And the one figure standing in their way is James because of what his brother said. So the historian Josephus, and then there's a later uh, uh, Christian historian Eusebius who quotes older sources tells us the story that uh, James would go to the temple daily to pray. And again, they called him camel knees, um, not because his knees look funny, um, but Jews pray by kneeling. And so his knees, if you've ever seen a camel, they have horrible knees, they're very bumpy, um, but he had uh, just worn uh, blisters on his knees because he prayed so much. These zealots will ambush him and try to throw him. Well, they do. They're in the process of stoning him. And again, we've talked about this before, but it's important to know in the Bible, when they talk about stoning somebody, they're not talking about everybody pick up a rock and throw it at a person until they're dead. Um, You can't do that. Um, Not really. Uh, As a kid, I used to have dirt clod fights. And uh, man, I've thrown dirt clods all day long, all afternoon, and not killed anybody. What they do is they throw you off a roof. They throw you off a high place, a cliff, like they were going to do to Jesus uh, in Galilee, um, remember you throw him off the cliff. So they throw you off and they break your legs, uh, or they'll bury you up to your neck if there's no place to throw you off. And then they take a rock and smash your head in. Okay, so this is what stoning actually is. So they throw James, who's in his 80s. They throw him off the side of the temple. It's a big fall. He breaks his legs. He's an old tough goat though, and he's not dead. So he's in the lower quarter. This is um, uh, the market area for the better part where the priests live right outside the temple. And they tell us there were uh, carpet merchants right nearby. And in order to make their wares look good, they had bats that they would beat their carpets so they would get all the dust and they would look good. So the zealots take one of these mallets and they beat uh, John in the head till he's dead. He never would deny his brother. They gave him every chance he could to deny who he had denied his entire life. So it's an amazing story about there was real faith in there. And that's what I mean. If we get past Mary never had kids. Mary was a superhuman. Mary, Mary, Mary. Mary was an incredible girl who grew into a woman of great faith that made the decisions that saved the world. She raised a family that changed the world. James, who denied Jesus, ends up becoming the the key chink in the chain to keep it going in its critical years. It's the end of Jerusalem when they kill James. Uh, The rebels will take over and the revolt begins. This will lead to the destruction of the temple. Um, Sort of everything that Jesus warned in Matthew 25. And his brother tried to stop it. So James is dead 
And who do they go to next to be the leader of the church? Peter. Nope. Nope, not Peter. Paul. Nope. Nope, not John, even though he was the beloved one. Jude, the next brother. And you can sort of see what the church was doing, right? They wanted this family of, of Jesus to be continuing. Uh, there is an absolutely fascinating uh, historical record that comes from about 125 years later. Christianity is really growing and it's, it's moving around. And the Roman emperors want to know as much as they can about Jesus. And so they send their troops to find any family members that are related to Jesus that are still alive. So this is 125 years later. And again, this is just a Roman report. So they find grandchildren of Jude. And they take them to Rome. And they quiz them. And basically they say, yep, um, we're followers of Jesus. We always have been. His kingdom's not of this world, but uh, it's where we belong. And so that's the last little glimpse that we have of this family. Um, Sure would have liked to know where they went or what happened to them. But uh, the church is absolutely decimated when the Romans begin to destroy everything and everyone in Israel and Galilee. So it's amazing that anybody survived. Much of the church that Jesus built was destroyed at that point. What survives are the Gentile churches because they're further from Jerusalem, which is why, unfortunately, mainly today, Christianity is a Gentile movement as opposed to the combination of Jewish and Gentile that I think was the initial intent. So, Comments, questions, worries? He must have a lot of patience. I don't think his family was picked by random. Uh, there were qualities in them that he saw. I think Jesus saw that his brothers could be great leaders for the church. Now, of course, we have works written by both of these guys, right? The letter of James and the letter of Jude. So these are not just nobodies. Uh, they're not, oh, well, let's get to Paul. Um, there's a reason why they were chosen to be leaders. So don't give up on your family as much as I want to sometimes. <laughs> uh, if Jesus had a hard time with them, so could we. But think about the kind of faith that Jesus does have in us as people. He trusted Mary and Joseph care for him when he was helpless. He trusted the church, in a sense, to his brother that had been a jerk to him his whole life. But he knows there's a better side to us. There are better sides to our family members. It just takes an act of God to discover it. Amen. All right. Well, any parting shots? Let's pray. Father, our God, we thank you. Your word is not a fairy tale. It doesn't tell us everything was fine and good and everybody was gracious and perfect. You really do share your 
hard moments with us. People did not always choose what they should have the first time. And even sometimes, Lord, when we choose it the first time, then the next time around, we don't. And yet you still stay with us. Your grace still abounds. Help us to learn from your family to see how special they were and see how special we can be as well. Father God, we know each one of us in this room has a special role to play, a person to talk to, a truth to stand up for, an evil to stop, an evil to battle. Help us to fulfill our pages of your great book and the hour that you've given for us to live. May we be found faithful as we draw on the faith of all those that have come before us. We are blessed by them, but most of all, by you. We do truly worship you alone, O God, and pray that we might be of service to you to make this world more like your kingdom. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you. Christ be mine.